This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Our network is a real uh, revolutionary right now. Background. Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roller. I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Monday, it's August 15th, 2022, and I'm Erica Savage sitting in for the indelible Roland Martin tonight. Here's what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. There could be more documents Trump took from the White House. Imagine that. What does that mean to our national security? We'll explore that with the incredible Dr. Nola Haynes, a national security and foreign policy expert. Tomorrow is Primary Tuesday, and many election deniers are running for office. 
number one best-selling Amazon author of the long and short of it guide to the 2022 midterms, the radical Republicans, Reese Colbert will join us to talk about the implication of these folks running for office across the country, including 14 gubernatorial races. Senator Lindsey Graham thought that he would be get out of testifying in my home state of Georgia's election probe. Not happening. A Texas county no longer has an elections department staff. They resigned over death threats and stalking. And a Mississippi state trooper caught on video putting a handcuffed black man in a chokehold, wrestling him into a ditch, is cleared of any wrongdoing. We'll also look at the impact of pay disparity as Black Women's Equal Pay Day approaches in 2022 with the incredible Dr. Avis Jones, the Weaver. And in today's Fit Live Win segment, the CDC relaxes its COVID guidelines. We are talking to a pediatrician who will give you some time on how you can keep your child safe in school. You already know what time it is, fam. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Let's get it, y'all. So we are still getting details about the FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last week. There could be more documents. According to the New York Times, Trump wanted Merrick Garland, our attorney general, to know that he had been speaking with people around the country and that they were unhappy about the search. Saying to Garland, the, tr the country is on fire. What can I do to reduce the heat? That was Trump's message that he conveyed to Attorney General Garland. The report also reveals that the Justice Department subpoenaed surveillance, fo surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago Mar over a 60-day period, including views from outside of the storage room. Since news broke of the FBI raid, Armed Trump supporters have protested outside an FBI office in Phoenix, Arizona, and a gunman was killed after trying to breach an office in Cincinnati, Ohio, on last Thursday. We are so incredibly happy to have the wonderful Dr. Nola Haynes kicking off our 6 o'clock hour. Dr. Nola Haynes is a national security and foreign policy expert as well as a political scientist here to break down all of this news we've gotten over the weekend. Welcome, Dr. Nola. So glad to have you on Roland Martin Unfiltered again. I'm happy to be here. I'm just trying to stop from sweating because my glasses keep sliding down my face. <laughs> Girl, you like me. I just had to take mine right on off and just let them be in a position of rest. 
<laughs> so you kicked off the hour on Friday, breaking down more of what we saw in terms of uh, what's been happening with Trump, um, these uh, documents that were stored in his Mar-a-Lago residence. So um, this today, what I would like for you to do, because there was more reporting that was coming out over the weekend, if you could walk us through, there's been a lot of verbiage, a lot of acronyms, which is very um, prominent, especially within federal government. federal government. If you could explain to the audience some of the things that they may have seen when reading and hearing a lot of these reports, we've seen classified, knowing what classified documents, but we've also seen TS, we've seen SCI, and we've seen the acronym SCIF, which we would call in federal government SCIF. Would you break that down for the audience and we can get more into what happened behind this discovery of these documents? Okay, so I will start with breaking down the classifications. So the three classifications um, that are most common are U.S. and T.S. So um, unclassified, classified, and top secret. And in that top secret realm, where you're seeing SCI, that is basically compartmentalized information that you have to pretty much read in a skiff, which is a very secure location um, where you can't bring in your cell phones, you can't take any photos, you can't take any notes. It's information that is left in that particular location. And a skiff can be not any place because it's a level of security that you need, but um, you can pretty much have skiffs inside of places like Mar-a-Lago. And from what I understand, Donald Trump did have a skiff built inside of Mar-a-Lago, which is a very secured area. So those are the three cl classifications. Thank you so much, because I know, you know, a lot of people have been seeing a lot of those acronyms floating around. And um, thank you for bringing us a little bit more clarity on what those are. Now, one of the things that was a bit, um, a, a bit concerning was that in 2021, he um, and his team were told to bring back documents uh, to, um, because those documents need to go into the presidential archives. 15 boxes were brought back. And so, as we're learning now, more and more, is that the Department of Justice have been in continual contact with his team to say that we need for you to bring back um, remaining documents into um, our possession so that those can be stored where they should be stored. Um, with, well, now what we're seeing is that there were some documents, but there may still may be remaining documents, and found out that on Saturday, two members of Congress, um, uh, Representative Carol Maloney, uh, Representative Adam Schiff, um, requested the director of national intelligence to brief Congress um, on, quote, potential harm done to national security. Um, share with us uh, how alarming that is that you would have two leaders of House committees saying that, listen, we need a classified briefing to our members around what may have happened as a consequence of this former president having these secure level documents inside of his not only residence, but his golf club as well, Dr. Nola. Yes, I had to take those glasses off. Um, okay, so um, 
Yes, it is a really big deal. It is a really big deal to national security. It is a really big deal in terms of um, protecting the legacy and legitimacy of the presidency. And it is a really big deal um, to our partners abroad. You know, so this has far-reaching um, consequences than um, just what's happen happening internally within the country. So in terms of um, why this is such a breach of national security is because Anyone who's ever gone through a security clearance process, you understand how arduous that process is. And not only that, there is a level of orientation or documents that you have to sign that you understand the procedures. And not only that, they also tell you what the consequences are if you do not follow those directions. Okay? So that's one part of it. And I know for just regular, regular folks, you know, who gets um, security clearance, I can't even imagine the level of layered security and the type of um, information that the president of the United States must get regarding secret, top secret information. So that that's one part of it. You know, this process is it's not a simple process. It's no joke. And you have to pretty much sign on a dotted line understand the, that you are getting sensitive information and that you understand how to handle that, that, that sensitive information. So what the Trump team is saying that some people in his camp are saying, well, the president has unilateral authority to declassify any documents. While that is true to some degree, we are talking about defense documents, okay? So when it comes to defense, when it comes to anything regarding um, especially uh, weapons of mass destruction, that's a different level of security. And that's usually when the SCI, the compartmentalized information that you read in the SCIF, that's where that, that, that typically, that type of information is typically um, read and, um, you know, kept within that location. So we're talking about a defense issue, and we're talking about potential espionage. And I want to be very clear about what that means and what it, what it does not mean. Espionage doesn't necessarily mean that um, the former put this information with the intent to sell to um, a foreign enemy. That could be the case. We do not know that yet. But what it really means is that documents were taken when they were not supposed to be taken. So his, his team is saying that there was a standing order that anytime documents were taken out of the White House and brought to Mar-a-Lago, that they were declassified. Now, the problem with that is, is process and procedure, okay? So while the president does have authority to declassify information inside documents, there's process and there's procedure. And also, Donald Trump was no longer the president after a certain date, so you just can't take documents out of the White House and retroactively say that they are declassified. These are sensitive documents pertaining to our defense and to other things. You know, more information has come out that there is information about intelligence um, personnel, which is incredibly dangerous. And some people are asking, why Why does the, the have this info, all this information about the French president? What was that information about? So it's the defense uh, information that's of interest. It's information about potentially, potentially unmasking um, intelligence um, officers. And then there's also some information about compromise against other uh, leaders. So there's there are a lot of different buckets. But one really important thing that happened today was it was revealed that three of uh, Donald Trump's passports were taken. That's big news. Yeah. Because that says that the government believes that he's a flight risk.
And that is something, you know, over the next couple days, over the next couple weeks, this is going to be a, a snowball that's going to grow and grow and metastasize. And I don't know what it's going to mean for this country. I don't know what it's going to mean for Donald Trump supporters. But I can tell you this. This country does not play when it comes to its national security. It does not play when it comes to documents that belong to the United States of America, not one man. Ah, you said it, Dr. Nola. And as a former federal employee, I know how serious those security clearances are, that those officers that collect that information do a thorough combing. They go through finances. They go through family history. They ask you questions around if you have met with any foreign nationals. It is a very thorough vetting process. And to know that he had these documents stored and, you know, we talked about earlier how over the 60 days that were taken, this doesn't mean that Mar-a-Lago was only surveilled for 60 days, but the 60-day time period that uh, you had Department of Justice officials looking at this footage, that they saw these documents being taken from one storage room to another. So you spoke to how se the serious, the very serious nature of um, what he has done. And then also that President Biden determined um, early on in his presidency that he no longer wanted for Donald Trump to continue to receive those national security briefings because he was not, he didn't have confidence in him receiving those briefings. If you could lastly then share with us, because you are also a foreign policy expert, um, that there are always um, issues that are happening with our partners and hostile governments around us. I, you know, served as an emissary, and um, that trip was not something that I could talk about for um, well over two years. Could you talk about the grave um, danger that, just to be very honest, that our country could be in because of this very, um, um, this very serious nature of mishandling of classified documents on a home residence golf property of a private citizen who was a foreign who was a former president. Well, first and foremost, you know, the main concern, I, I hate to, you know, hate to say Russia, 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 but we all know that Donald Trump had a very cozy relationship with Putin had a very cozy relationship with other dictators around the world who many might classify as our adversaries or even go as far as to say enemies. And so that in and of itself is worrying, because we know publicly that Donald Trump not only, um, you know, decided to believe Vladimir Putin over his intelligence agencies in Helsinki when he was a president, um, he's he's given away classified information knowingly or unknowingly. He, he did it publicly. He's shown photos, maybe showing off. We don't know. But he has this tendency of not being very careful with sensitive information, coupled with him buddying up with these dictators who move in a very different way from the way that we do here in the United States. You never know. And one thing that I was thinking about, you know, um, in the political science community, especially international relations, I have to put my glasses on, I can't see, <laughs> especially in the international relations community, you know, one of the things that mean a great deal to us is something called rational actor theory. Mm -hmm. And so that theory says that an actor is always going to act in the best interest of their state, not necessarily in their own self-interest. And so one of the issues around Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine was why? 
why on earth would Vladimir Putin do this? This is not in the interest, this is not in the best interest of his state. So I'm thinking, you know, connecting possible dots, what made Vladimir Putin feel as though he could do this, mm -hmm. right? So one thing that was happening, especially after 1-6, a lot of people around the world thought that we were weakened as a nation, right? So that's one way of Vladimir Putin testing U.S. strength, right? I think he's quite surprised that the Biden-Harris administration has been able not only to rally the global security community, but to keep it together. Right. That has not happened since World War II. And I think people really need to understand the largeness of that accomplishment. So that's one thing. And then secondly, it's kind of like, did Vladimir Putin have information about, you know, the U.S. or other countries or something like that? Like, it's really a question of what motivated Vladimir Putin to do this. It makes no real sense, you know? I mean, there are a lot of uh, theories out there floating out, you know, floating out there about if you listen to a lot of um, Vladimir Putin's public statements, he's pretty much said, you know, that he's had ambitions of, um, you know, putting together the former USSR and like these ambitions of, you know, rebuilding the empire. So that's one part of it. That's part of his ideology, right? But it's, but strategically, strategically, this is still kind of a gray area. Like, what possessed this man to do this in 2022? So it's one of those things that I have been thinking through since all of this has happened. What does Vladimir Putin know? I'm not saying that, that he knows something, but, but it is very secure in this day where, you know, people are really focused on growing economies and um, not necessarily, you know, military action that can possibly spark World War III. So it's just one of those things that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm very curious about who knows what and what potentially could have happened to that information at a not-so-secure Mar-a-Lago. My, 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 what a friend he has in Donald Trump. The incredible Dr. Nola Haynes, friend of the show, national security and foreign policy expert. Thank you so much for kicking off Roland Martin Unfiltered today. Thank you so much. All right, now we are going to go to our panel. We have a wonderful panel for today. Dr. Julianne Malvo, Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies, California State University, LA. Uh, my home state, uh, Georgia State Representative Renita Shannon, and Xavier Pope, the owner and host of Suit Up News and the Pope Law Firm. Thank you all for joining on this wonderful Monday. So listen, we have uh, again heard from Dr. Nola Haynes. Um, she's a national security and foreign policy expert. I want to go to you first, um, Xavier, because you are our um, attorney here on the show. So with all of the news that has been breaking over the weekend, uh, hearing more, Dr. Uh, Nola just shared with us that Trump's passports, three of his passports were scooped up today. Um, hearing more about really um, the unsafe handling of these classified documents. You, if you were an attorney um, on the staff of Donald Trump, uh, what would be your biggest worry at this time? Well, I'd be first worried uh, that I would potentially be setting myself up for some criminal inquiry into not being honest uh, with the government, because uh, there are lawyers that sign off mm -hmm. on stating that those documents have, 
all the documents had been turned over when they turned out they weren't, and that led to this particular raid. So I'll be worried about my freedom, <laughs> and uh, Michael Cohen had to worry about that at some point. And also, I'd worried about being disbarred uh, in terms of submitting um, false information to a tribunal uh, in order to uh, to keep my law license. So I'd be worried. Um, that's what that would be number one. Uh, the second thing is I would be rushing to send Donald Trump. Uh, my resignation from being his counsel, um, having lied to the federal government and putting my freedom in jeopardy. Absolutely. I mean, that written declaration that was turned over to the Department of Justice um, so brazenly, as you said, um, turned out to be false when there were more documents, 11 additional boxes of documents um, that were picked up as they continued to converse with that team. It's definitely something uh, to be very worried about. Um, you know, Dr. Malvo, as we continue to move through the Trump dump, as I have called it, you know, over the past uh, week or so, one of the things that has been really interesting is um, the archiving piece. And, you know, you are a professor, you are a very thorough person, um, that the archive uh, department has said that, listen, these documents are very um, serious documents. All presidents have turned over those documents after their time in office. Uh, are you so... I know that you're not surprised because um, you're not a fan of Donald Trump, but what say you around the continued back-and-forth conversations that the archive department, the Department of Justice has had to have with Donald Trump and his advisory team to ensure that we get back documents that are owed to the government since he has been president? First of all, Erica, good to see you in the host chair. It's good to see you. Thank you. This is my friends in D.C. Um, but still, let me say that um, I'm not surprised at anything Donald Trump does. Mm -hmm. But what he is doing, if I put my scholar's hat on, is he's robbing the scholars of the future mm -hmm. on what happened on his watch. Now, if I were he, I would like to hide it, too, because he really doesn't have anything to be proud of. And you're right, I'm not a fan. It's not even that I'm not a fan. It's just that if anybody is a fan of that man, they need to have their head examined tomorrow. Um, shrinks are closed now, but they're open at 9 o'clock. But in any case, he's depriving historians mm -hmm. and scholars yeah. of the knowledge that they need to dissect not only his administration, but the context. We what people are going to want to look at. What happened leading up to Ukraine? Of course, Ukraine happened under Biden's watch, but still, what, was there something that happened before that? That would be in those archives. We want to look at some, some of the other issues that would be in those archives. He's stealing from the people of the United States. These are not his personal documents. These are the United States government documents. And so, from a scholarly perspective, Many historians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, have to be profoundly disappointed that this man has really robbed us. This is like shop, shoplifted history, and it's unacceptable. Oh, absolutely, Dr. Malvo. I love the way that you worded that. And, you know, we both, we all know um, that Donald Trump is um, really good at not taking care of his debts and stealing. Uh, Representative Shannon, good to have you on. And so, as a person who serves as a legislator there at the Georgia State Capitol, um, I, you know, Dr. Nolan and I were talking about how you had two members of Congress that lead um, committees to say that, listen, it is urgent that we need to have our members of Congress in a classified briefing to talk about potential harms and threats to this nation. As a person who is a legislator of a state that you oversee policy, you oversee 
um, the care of constituents. How worrying is that for you? Well, I'm glad. Thank you for having me, number one. And I'm glad that you brought that up about um, those Congress people going through the process to find out what is really going on, because I think that's why we're in this predicament is that too many folks allowed uh, Trump before he was president to sort of skip the process. As elected officials, we are subject to having to file personal finance disclosures on a yearly basis, which tells the public uh, how we make our money, how much money we make. Um, some information around debts and liabilities and dealings with companies. And if you remember, when Trump first ran, he refused to turn over his tax returns. And so because the process was not followed when he was a candidate and everybody sort of just moved on and the pressure for him to turn over his tax returns went away, there's a lot of catching up that we have to do. And I'm glad that the members of Congress are looking into this because we don't know what is the reason that he took unclassified, doc that he took classified documents. We don't know what that reason is. He may have financial problems um, where he needs to sell information to operate now that he is a private citizen again. And so I'm glad that they are moving forward with doing the heavy lifting of figuring out exactly what is going on. Absolutely. He has over a billion in debt, $325 million in cash, but the math still ain't mapping. Um, so we're going to come back um, and continue on with our panel. We're going to go to a break. We thank you for joining us on this first half. This is Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Check us out. When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene. A white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence. White people are losing their damn minds. As an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol, we're about to see the rise of what I call white minority resistance. We have seen white folks in this country who simply cannot tolerate black folks voting. I think what we're seeing is the inevitable result of violent denial. This is part of American history. Every time that people of color have made progress, whether real or symbolic, there has been what Carol Anderson at Emory University calls white rage as a backlash. This is the rise of the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys. America, there's going to be more of this. Here's all the Proud Boys, guys. This country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people. The fear that they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources, they're taking our women. This is white fear. When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. Next, on The Black Table, with me, Greg Carr, a conversation with Professor Toyin Falola, a man described by many as an African intellectual legend. He is without a doubt the most important and prolific writer, thinker, teacher, and servant of African studies in the modern world. And then, today, we have George Floyd, the Black Lives Matters, and the re-emergence of radical Black thought. We're honored to welcome him to a very special, can't miss episode of The Black Table, only on the Black Star Network. 
Hey, I'm Donnie Simpson. Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. I'm Shantae Moore. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. The midterm general elections are a few months away, and the fight to keep Congress blue weighs heavy on the Biden administration. With several election deniers on the ballot and clear signs that Trump may run again in 2024, the battle for democracy is being waged at the poll. CNN reports that GOP election deniers were on the ballot for 14 gubernatorial races in at least 10 states had candidates running for secretary of state. A clear example of this is Arizona, where former TV news anchor Carrie Lake beat wealthy self-funder Karen Taylor Robson in the gubernatorial primaries, despite Robson's supporter from Governor, um, Governor Ducey and former Vice President Mike Pence and actually putting in $15 million of her own coins. However, the author, the Amazon best-selling author of the long and short guide, the long and short of it guide to the 2022 midterms to radical Republicans, Reese Colbert, founder of Black Women Views, joins us now. Welcome, my friends. So glad to have you. I'm so honored to be here with you hosting, sis. You are doing a <laughs> fabulous job. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate you. There is no one better to talk to around um, people who are running for office. Um, I love the guide, which people can go to Amazon. They can still pre-order now. It drops Thursday, August the 18th. Um, yes. So before we get to the long and short of it, guide, let's talk a little bit about um, we've got 84 days until the midterms. Um, you don't only um, um, talk about the current administra administration, Biden-Harris administration, but you also, you also talk about congressional races. You cover mm -hmm. um, those statewide races and those local races as well. 84 days into the midterms and the urgency of being more informed could not be more important, Reese, especially right now, because a lot of these candidates are really ganging for power, um, and they actually have the potential to do real harm um, right. if they do get into office. So talk to us a little bit about um, what you're seeing in some of the races that you have been covering that are proving to be alarming if people do not get out and exercise the vote. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the reason why I decided to do the long and short of it guide to the 2022 midterms is because we are so inundated with information to the point that a lot of us, including myself sometimes, just check out of the conversation. And we figure, like, it's something that we'll handle later. And I think as a result of that, the Republicans are kind of getting a free pass to the midterms, a lot of the discussion is simply about the Democrats and what they are or are not delivering about the sausage making in Congress. And I really want to 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 try to bring attention to just how radical these Republicans are. And um, so I, I cover 20 different races in the book. Now, the long and short of it is meaning that I, you know it's it's 
It's more so an in-depth look at seven races. Uh, these are gubernatorial and Senate races that are more competitive. And then I profile an additional 13 races that are just blurbs, because the point of the guide is to not be encyclopedic. Nobody wants to sit up there and read 300 pages or spend two weeks. So I've done all the research, over 80 hours of research, and I've put it into context to really shine a light on these candidates. Because, Erica, one of the things I noticed in my research is these Republicans are really hiding a lot of their positions. Mm -hmm. If you go to their websites, there's no information on where they stand on things or what they plan to do beyond platitudes. But these are really extreme people, like you mentioned, election deniers. And on the, uh, the issue of abortion, there are some really extreme uh, platforms that people have, like, for instance, Doug Mastriano in, um, in, 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 in um, Pennsylvania. He's a gubernatorial candidate. Not only is he an election denier, but he wants to ban abortion even when the mother's life is at stake. So women will die if he has his way, point blank in the period, um, and he becomes governor. So these are some of the extreme positions that I really want to highlight um, from these candidates. Yeah, and, and that's so important. I'm glad that you're, um, not only you brought forward that they're election denier, but I mean, there are real reproductive implications and you um, so um, aggressively um, and, and welcomed aggressively cover black maternal health and what the Biden yeah. Harris, um, especially VP Harris has done around that issue to help um, black women who Senator Kennedy opened Louisiana and you cover him mm -hmm. in your guide has said that, well, black women don't count because they're really not people dying while having children or up to a year after they've had a baby. Um, so thank you for lifting that. Going to some of these um, election deniers, you talk about some of the extreme abuse that they have, Reese. Out in Arizona, you've got governors, senators, AG, and secretary of state race candidates. They are bending the knee um, yeah. of Trump to Trump. Um, and some of the things that they're doing and some of the things that they're saying, uh, you got one candidate that was actually um, out at 1-6, um, Mark Fincham, secretary of state. We, um, we talk about those secretary of state races, you're talking about a person who was the chief election officer over all elections. Talk to people why it's not, you know, there were people that were saying, well, you know, just vote down ballot. It does not matter at the top of the ticket. The entire ticket matters, but we're going to go through um, some of the importance of some of these. CNN has talked about there are 14 people who are GOP election deniers that are running in gubernatorial races. 10 people who are these election deniers that are running in these statewide elections. And in some um, states like Pennsylvania, I believe, the governor um, can appoint the secretary of state, which is dangerous when you've got election deniers and extreme candidates on the ballot. Talk to yeah. us on um, the importance of these races like secretary of state um, and, um, of course, um, these gubernatorial races that should really have people making sure that they pick up this guy so that they can get a real good look at who is really threatening democracy and their health care and access to care on the ballot. Yes, Erica, like you mentioned, in my book, I talk about Doug Mastriano, who is the official gubernatorial candidate for the Republican uh, nomination. In Pennsylvania, the Secretary of State is appointed or selected by the governor. And he has already said that he will he will appoint somebody who has experience 
in, 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 in overseeing elections. But we know, if we look at his history, this is what I discussed in the book, he signed on to several unsuccessful lawsuits suing um, over the election results. He was an insurrectionist. He was physically at the January 6th rally. There's video evidence of him at the Capitol, okay? He's been invested—he's he's been interviewed by the, the, by the January 6th select, select committee. He does not believe in um, in, in acknowledging the will of the people. He has said that he might certify the results if a Republican, you know, if basically if a Republican wins, then he'll do it. Otherwise, he just might do it. So these are the kinds of things that I want people to understand. There are so many facets on which these Republican candidates are a threat. Then you have somebody like J.D. Vance, who is the U.S. Senate nominee. Now, the Senate is critical in terms of the 2022 midterms. And Ohio isn't as competitive as other states have been in the past. But that is a key area. Tim Ryan is polling really well there, where people should be paying attention to somebody like J.D. Vance, who used to be a Trump critic, but now he's gone full Trumper in order to secure that nomination. And what's worse is, you know, he was one of those people where I, I just felt like I deserve hazard pay for just writing about him, because truly researching his his area was, was disgusting. He's one of the most vile candidates running. And that's a high bar considering how vile these Republicans are in general. I mean, this guy's flagrantly racist with a lot of the things that he says. He's the one who said, um, are you, do you hate Mexicans? Are you racist? I'm your guy in a campaign ad. And so, you know, a lot of attention goes to these, these moments, these viral moments that people have or these one-day stories. But these people have a very detrimental view, worldview and political view that is going to do damage on every facet of our society if they gain power. Absolutely, Reese, and um, to be um, echoed more and more if they gain power. Um, I just want to read out those 10 states um, because I know a lot of times, and I'm glad that you brought out what J.D. Vance said um, about do you hate Mexicans, that's pretty much a vote for him. Um, when you're talking about um, these states where election deniers are running um, that are governor's races, and I listed them from North, went Midwest, um, and then I went to the South last. So we've got Maine, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, South mm -hmm. Dakota, Idaho, Kansas, Arizona, and then we have Alabama. So it is not relegated to a specific region. These right. people have spread out um, across the country and they will probably continue to populate. And then we go to the races for Secretary of State, Vermont. Um, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Michigan, Minnesota, Indiana, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and then Alabama. This is not a regional. This is not um, a specific look. These are people of wealth. These are people of prominence. These right. are people who, to your left, your right, they might be playing Renaissance right now. They might be playing Beyonce, but they do not like Beyonce. They do not <laughs> like us. Um, be very clear. So when you um, named it the radical Republicans, why was it necessary um, as an author to make sure that when you um, compiled this guide and that you titled it, that you did really kind of kid us strongly to let us know who you were exactly talking about? Well, you know, the thing about it is, I think the media is so much on trying to be so-called balanced and trying to sanitize. We know that they love to rehabilitate the image of white supremacists, and in particular, Republicans. And I feel like in this horse race coverage that we have talking about 
uh, elections, we tend to not really realize or recognize how radical the Republicans are. You know, if you listen to Republicans talk, it's always the far left, the far left, the far left. And you don't often hear Democrats or people who are not, you know, Republican really acknowledge just how radical these Republicans are. You know, in addition to what you're talking about, election deniers, we know that the Republican Party is the party of voter suppression. When you have, as I talked about in the book, Brian Kemp, he's not an election denier. He actually did faithfully execute the results of the uh, the the um, the presidential de presidential results, but he alone disenfranchised the largest number of voters, over 500,000 voters in a single night than any other person in history. That was according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution when that happened, when he was running for governor in the first place. And so every single one of the things that I do highlight throughout the book is where these candidates stand when it comes to voting rights. And these are all, whether they're an election denier or not, not all of them are, they all have detrimental views in terms of gerrymandering, which is Ron DeSantis down in Texas, who with laser-like precision gerrymandered that state against the wishes of the, his own legislature and against what the original courts had directed him to do. And he said, who's going to check me, boo, and went forward with it anyway. Now they're stuck with it to disenfranchise black voters. And so the election denier part is like the sexy headline. But the reality is that these people do not want to see people like us have full citizenship and participation in this democracy. That's the bigger issue. So whether people are playing a role or are, are kowtowing to Donald Trump to get his endorsement, which has proved to be very powerful in these primaries, we have to take the threat that they take to our citizenship very seriously. Absolutely, Reese. And watch your celebrity friends who also are, because these same people, as Reese talked about with voter suppression, are also complicit in COVID disinformation. Um, yep. and misinformation in general. So um, our panel, um, I'm going to um, open it up for you all to ask questions um, of Reese Colbert, Amazon best-selling author. I'll start with you, Representative Shannon. Well, Reese, I'm so excited to take a look at, to read your book. Um, you always do great work. I want to ask you, did you um, talk at all about what's going on here in Georgia with our Secretary of State's race? Because we've got Brad Raffensperger, who has been um, heralded by a lot of the country for having stood up to Trump. But as you just said, these are the same folks who would continue to do voter suppression. Um, I always tell folks, having served on the Governmental Affairs Committee for the last six years, and that committee deals with election law, that Brad Raffensperger was telling the big lie before the president was, which is that any election that Republicans don't win is completely ripe of voter fraud, and that's the reason that the election, that the, the results are illegitimate. So did you have any, did you have a chance to spend any time on Brad Raffensperger? Because we've got a very dangerous thing going on here in Georgia. We've got Democrats who are actually um, planning on voting for Brad Raffensperger. And right now mm -hmm. he polls higher than any Democrat um, that was in our, in our primary for Secretary of State. Well, I'll be honest, I did not cover him specifically, but I did spend a, a significant amount of time talking about Brian Kemp's role in voter suppression in terms of the voter suppressive bills that he passed in uh, Georgia, as well as his work when he was Secretary of State. So even though I didn't talk about Brad specifically, I definitely wanted people to understand just how much the Republican Party, and Brian Kemp in particular, does not want black voters to vote. And he specifically said that if Democrats get people to vote through, like, automatic voter registration, if they turn out black and brown voters, then they're going to have a problem. They cannot win elections. And so 
I'll be honest, the book is not a, it's not, it's not an issues like book in terms of like, these are the issues. And I tell anecdotes from around the country as it relates to each issue. This, this particular version actually focuses on 20 candidates. And so um, these are governor candidates and these are Senate candidates that I chose to focus on in this one. But to your point, uh, Representative Shannon, what's happening in Georgia is something that's not talked about enough. And I hope we will have more discussions about it after people really remind or get a reminder of how sinister Brian Kemp has been in terms of voter suppression. Dr. Malvo. Um, thanks for your book. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it also. I'm, let's stay on Georgia, if we might. Um, because the venality of these Republicans mm. is startling to me. Herschel Walker yeah. was docked on his head when he was 11, and he's been mm. um, had overcome that ever since. But they have poured millions of dollars, even as he's revealed that he's had out-of-wedlock children that he denied, that he lied about. I think he said he was a sheriff or something in the military, something. I mean, he, he right. wouldn't know the truth, you know, if it, if it laid down with him. And so the yes. question is, Bring us up to speed on that. We know that the Republicans have no integrity, but what about him? What is wrong with him as a black man who has just embraced everything that's wrong with the world? You know, I, I, I have a chapter on Herschel Walker, and there is a lot wrong with him, okay? Let's just be very clear on that. You know, one of the major things is that he's just fundamentally unserious in terms of his credentials and in terms of any plans that he has. I mean, his website is a complete joke. It's just nothing but platitudes. He doesn't do real interviews. He speaks in complete word salad, nonsensical things. I think he might have CTE. I didn't say that in my book, but I'm telling y'all, he might have, like, CTE for real. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to do with, with the chapter I wrote on Herschel Walker is to put his past the things that you said in context. We know that he concealed the existence of three children, um, but I wanted to put that in context of the fact that he calls himself a pro-family candidate, the fact that he has denigrated Black fathers in particular. He's apologized to the Black community, like he's literally said, I apologize to the Black community, because he characterizes Black men as being absentee fathers. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to, to, to draw the dot, connect the dots and say, this person is a hypocrite for the way that he conducts himself. But he has very troubling views when it comes to abortion. He's a candidate that does not support abortion for any exceptions, including the life of a mother, so women will die, as well as rape and incest victims. He is on the extreme side when it comes to abortion rights. And so there's a lot wrong with him. And one of the things in my book, I call it Reese Speak. Because I, I say I, in my introduction, I say up front, this is not a non, it's not an unbiased book. This is not equal parts pro and con. We got enough of that. Nobody got time for that. You know what? What I'm hoping is that people who, number one, want to just have a conversation about politics from somebody that they can trust that they can walk away and be like, okay, I just talked to my smart homegirl about politics and she put me up on speed and now I can go and I can tell anybody what they need to know. Like, that's really the tone of the book. Uh, but Herschel Walker's chapter is kind of brutal. I, I don't like talking down about a black man. I wasn't trying to do that. But Herschel Walker got some shit with him. And so that definitely comes out in this book in a number of ways. And Mr. Pope. Reese, thank you for your book. Uh, thank you for spreading information to public that they definitely need. Uh, things have been have changed significantly since the, the primary season. We've had yeah. the January 6th committee hearings pick up new revelations about that. And then we also have seen 
um, with the raid on Mar-a-Lago and maybe some of the more uh, damaging elements of that that's now starting to maybe impact uh, Donald Trump negatively. How is that going to maybe impact how some of the candidates that you've been watching potentially may behave in terms of claiming election fraud? And we also seen some of the lawsuits that are coming out in terms of voting machines and things of that nature. We're seeing real impact in terms of people who have been election deniers, whether that's going to maybe stop them or maybe they are still have some wind underneath their wings in terms of some of the voter suppression bills that have been passed uh, in some of the different states um, in this election. Yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, one of the things I don't really get into in this book is horse race coverage, because I do think that that tends to obscure people's positions. But to your point, I do expect people to flip-flop. And I point out people like Mehmet Oz, who's flip-flop on damn near every position that he's held. J.D. Vance is another big-time flip-flopper. Uh, Greg Abbott flip-flopped when it comes to gun control. I do point out kind of the—I don't call it evolution, because these are decisions that people have made out of political expediency um, that people have made. So what I hope is that people will will get a sense of the character of these candidates and get a sense of what they've said, what they're proposing, and not let people off the hook because they might moderate um, some of their rhetoric. That When I was on uh, Simone Shaw on MSNBC, they kind of talked about how Republicans are moderating. And I'm like, no, the hell they're not. They're not moderating their policies, even if they moderate their speech, even if they come out and condemn Trump for being under investigation for violating the Espionage Act. Their policies are still extreme, and that's what we cannot let them off the hook about. All right, Reese, Amazon best-selling author, The Long Short of It Guide to the Midterms, The Radical Republicans. Um, you need to go ahead and pre-order. As I said, the book drops on Thursday, August the 18th. Reese, founder of Black Women Views Media, thank you so much for your time today, sis. Thank you, sis. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get into another little bit of a dump Trump. Trump dump. <laughs> another one of Trump's biggest allies must travel to the Peach State to testify about its election probe. A federal judge said, now come on over here to Georgia. And she ruled that the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina must testify in front of a special grand jury regarding his role in the 2020 election probe. Graham's attorney attempted to use his congressional privilege to block the testimony. Still, the judge, uh, who is a U.S. district judge that was appointed by President Obama in 2013, she was then um, nominated by the Senate in a vote of 99 to 0. She sided with the district attorney, saying Graham's testimony is pivotal regarding his role in the 2020 Georgia election results. And as we continue to talk about elections, 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 an entire team of election officials in a Texas county has resigned because of threats and harassment after the 2020 election. The Gillespie County Administrator, Anissa Herrera, is quitting after nearly three years. She previously worked as an election clerk for almost a decade. Some workers have hired private security and off-duty police officers for protection. Herrera said she's been stalked, threatened, and called out online. She says Texas elections, excuse me, Texas elections are safe and secure, but the people with dangerous beliefs 
forced her to resign, my Lord. We're getting ready to go to a break. Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. We'll be back in just a moment. When we invest in ourselves, we're investing in what's next for all of us. Growing, creating, making moves that move us all forward. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. On a Next to Balance Life with me, Dr. Jackie, summer is flying by and back to school is just around the corner and fall is here. That's right, a new season is upon us. On our next show, we talk about jumping into action and putting procrastination in the rearview mirror. That's on a Next A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie here on Black Star Network. When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packer. I'm Chrisette Michelle. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. And welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered Daily Digital Show. I am guest host Erica Savage. We're going to talk to our panel um, just about the couple stories that we um, brief that I just read through. One of um, which is um, of special interest to me, uh, especially since we have Representative Shannon on, is around Lizzie Graham having to testify before that grand jury. And I, I made some remarks with um, I made some remarks with regard to. Uh, what, who judge, who the U.S. district uh, judge is in this case that said that, no, homeboy, you need to come on to Georgia um, and because that really does speak to how important elections are. And I just want to read a little piece of uh, her ruling, uh, Representative Shannon, and then have you comment. She said, though Senator Graham argues that he is exempt from testifying as a high-ranking government official, the court finds that the district attorney, who is a black woman, Shout out District Attorney Willis has shown extraordinary circumstance and a special need for Senator Graham's testimony on issues related to alleged attempts to influence or disrupt the lawful administration of Georgia's um, elections. She wrote that in her ruling um, because he made a couple of phone calls after the election was over to the Secretary of, Secretary of State that she were just talking about recently with Brad Raffensperger around, um, we're thinking, the vote count. So, Representative Shannon, what say you about this ruling um, that Georgia said, no, you, you need to come here and you need to um, appear before our special grand jury next Tuesday? Well, I'm glad to see the ruling. Um, I was actually surprised by it because uh, here in the state of Georgia, um, state-level officials like myself, actually our communications are protected. They're not subject to open records. And so I kind of was, um, you know, not... Um, I was kind of a little pessimistic about what would happen as far as ruling on this question. And so I'm really glad to see this. Look, I think all around the country, you, you've got a certain segment of white folks in this country who are finally understanding mm -hmm. with the... Um, 
raid on Mar-a-Lago with Graham having to testify, they are finally understanding what many of us have wanted them to know, which is that no one is above the law in this country, not Donald Trump, their leader, and not any of them. And so I am glad that this is happening, and it's just time for everyone to be held accountable. Absolutely, Representative Shannon. I, I seeing that your chorus on that. And, you know, Xavier, talking about no one is above the law, Representative Shannon just said that. Um, I remember, like, last week, I think he was supposed to be in Georgia, and I guess that's when uh, his attorneys were in communications um, with um, the um, DA's office there around trying to get this quashed. Well, he's got to pull up. They said that, no, sir, your congressional privilege is no good here. Your privilege card has been revoked. Um, so, you know, as an attorney, as our legal uh, eye here, uh, what are your thoughts around him actually having to appear and this special grand jury that has been convened and the likelihood that there will be charges that will come out of his testimony? Yeah, it will... First and foremost, uh, he still has to appear in front of the tribunal. Uh, that will be August 23rd, I believe, is the date he's uh, scheduled to appear. He actually still has to do it. We've seen uh, with uh, other members of Congress, other, other figures connected to the 2020 presidential election, that some people haven't responded to various subpoenas, contempt of court. So we'll see whether Lindsey Graham wants to play that game in the state court of Georgia and see what happens at that point. Um, I, we also hear that that uh, that Rudy Giuliani is now a target of the investigation in Georgia in terms of his role. A criminal uh, responsibility potentially could be on Giuliani's desk. Uh, I see him singing like a bird. Um, I don't know whether... Lindsey Graham is the same person who said that Donald Trump would make Republicans pay dearly for supporting him, yep. he got caught up in the same web himself. Absolutely. I love it. And I, I love these receipts that Xavier has pulled. Uh, you know, Dr. Malvo, here we are, more of the goon squad is continuing to have to answer to law enforcement um, for their own behavior. Uh, what are you hopeful for as we continue to see, as Xavier brought forward, Giuliani um, has to now talk We've got Senator Lindsey Graham, who tried to um, dip, who has been trying to dip and dodge and use privilege as a way to not appear before this grand jury. It all came falling down right in front of his face. You ask me what I hope for? I hope for orange jumpsuits for all of them. <laughs> uh, I, I think that that's a, the best thing to do. I appreciate what Xavier said about um, Lindsey Graham, because Lindsey Graham, if you Think back to 2016. Mm. He was he was dissing Trump left and right. He had no tea for Trump's fever. All of a sudden, he's playing golf with him. You know what Trump has done? He's created this cult-like atmosphere among Republicans, mm -hmm. where they feel like they cannot um, oppose him in any way at all. And that's not good for the Republican Party. Although I'm not a member of it, but it's not good for the Republican Party. But it's also not good for democracy when people know they're wrong but they still are going to do wrong. And I'm not, you know, there are some Republicans, I have no respect or anything else for them, but then there are people like Mitt Romney, um, Sue Collins. These folks have essentially drunk the Trump Kool-Aid and put extra sugar in it so they can swallow the bile, the bile mm. that that man has put out there. I mean, Mitt Romney should have voted 
um, there's so many times he could have voted. Sue Collins is responsible singularly for Gorsuch and um, Kavanaugh. So these are people who would put themselves out there as reasonable Republicans, but there is nothing reasonable about people who are playing with women's bodily autonomy. There's nothing reasonable about Lindsey Graham, who flip-flopped so much, he's like a piece of fish, um, been breaded twice and put in deep, deep oil. So in any case, what, what we see is their hypocrisy coming home to roost. And if you ask me what I want, orange jumpsuits, just orange jumpsuits. Orange jumpsuits. Right to go with that Kool-Aid. Um, and then we're, we're going to touch on the story that um, I, I talked through, which was that you have out in Texas, Gillespie County, you have uh, these election workers that are saying, like, listen, we're done. We can't have enough. You know, on the 1-6 committee hearings, for all those that were watching those committee hearings, you had Shea Moss testify to the ongoing harassment that she and her mother have experienced, um, her grandmother's door being banged on, and there being a clan of people that were calling um, a citizen's arrest, calling, um, just to be very blunt um, about it, for her head. These were people who were poll workers um, in the metro Atlanta area. Xavier, I'll start with you. Um, you know, just on Roland's show on Friday, he had a guest on, and the plea was really uh, to get people engaged in being poll workers because, you know, as we all pretty much know, we're politicals. We have our head in, you know, all political news. We're here in the Beltway, but then also have an understanding that poll workers, usually for anybody that goes out and vote, they're usually um, our senior um, our, our grandparents, our aunts and our uncles, and they um, are very, very, um, they are real patriots. They take a great pride in executing those duties. Um, it doesn't matter if it is a local election, a statewide congressional election, presidential election, they take great pride in doing that. But as that population ages, we have the pandemic um, that is still gaining. We're still in the pandemic. We have different viruses that are coming back, polio. We've got monkeypox. Um, all of these different, it's just not a safe environment um, for a lot of our seniors to be out of poll workers. So really um, saying, hey, we're really recruiting some people um, to come on and to be of help. What do you think that stories like this do to the recruitment effort um, as we enter into the midterm elections, understanding that different municipalities sometimes have elections every year? First, I saw what you did. Um, in terms of tall, like saying there's a clan of people outside of, <laughs> of their houses. So I, I peeped that. Um, and I think, I think it's important that our media puts attention on what we're facing is replacement theory trying to be made law, trying to be made policy, and also trying to dismantle democracy. And the motivations that are behind that being racist and racism and institution of Trump Crow, a 2022 version of Jim Crow. This election will test to determine whether that path will continue to be able to attempt to dismantle democracy or whether people will push back. We do need a younger generation of individuals that will participate in their democracy in terms of being poll workers, not just in our districts and the places where we live, but also going, and if they can, if it's legally feasible, to go into other parts uh, where uh, their votes are being counted in places that they may not look like them or vote like them. Yeah. That's some of, some of the, what they're doing uh, to come in various districts where they are African-American vote, uh, voters in terms of being poll watchers as well and, and being able to, hey, we want to be able to see votes being counted. So we should be doing that as well. Uh, we have to be politically engaged. We definitely need to be able to reach out to people who don't traditionally 
vote who say there's no difference between both parties. Well, this year has shown clearly um, what there is definitely a difference between two parties. People need to be able to get engaged, and those that are progressive who are uh, maybe disenfranchised in terms of not being I feel like their needs being met maybe economically or politically, but they're civically engaged, understanding that the beliefs that you have, you're free to have them because we live in a democratic society. And so to be able to continue that, you need to be able to participate in the democratic structure known as voting in the United States of America. That sounds like a message that needs to be on replay to me. Thank you so much for that. We're going to switch gears just a little bit, and we're going to move into uh, something that is uh, critically important, not just to one specific community, but to all. September the 21st, not August 21st, not March 21st, but September 21st, 2022, is Black Women's Equal Pay Day. And the fight for equal wages moves forward. The gap between black women and their white male counterpart continues to grow. According to the American Association of University Women, it takes black, woman, black women an estimated, get ready for this, 19 months to earn the same as their white male counterparts. 19 months. That's a year and a half. And according to the National Partnership for Women and Families, the disparity is even more significant in some states like Louisiana. The report shows that black women in the state only earn, not 50 cent, not 49 cent, 48 cent on the dollar compared to their white male counterparts. Dr. Ava Stone-DeWeaver, the founder of Exceptional Black Women Network, joins us now. We're gonna talk about it Dr. Avis, thank you so much for connecting uh, with us today. Um, you are the uh, best person for us to be having this conversation with because you have served as editor-in-chief of the State of Black Women in the United States report. Um, I was reading through that 2020 report and just want to hit on some of the finer points I've read that really blew me away. So we're still in the global pandemic. That is definitely playing a critical part in what you're going to be sharing with us. Talk to us a bit about why this year's Black Women's Equal Pay Day, day is acutely alarming, um, a, a given as the wage gap in historical free labor <laughs> that Black women have given and continue to give to this country. Absolutely. It was so great to see you in that host chair, Erica, by the way. Um, I have to say, you know, this number, what we see this year is particularly startling. Just to put this in context, I have been looking and researching and writing about data around black women and our economic well-being for a good 20 plus years now. Yeah, I know I look like I'm 21, but I'm not, okay? Uh, so I have been doing that for a while, okay? And I think it's important that we recognize that this is the biggest decline that I have seen in one year ever since I've been looking at this data. I mean, this is a huge jump, all right? Typically, as you alluded to, um, Black Women's Equal Pay Day typically falls in August. Last year, it was August 2nd. This year, it's September 21st. What does that mean in practical terms? You just said, hey, it's 19 months. Let me just put that in even more practical terms to people. That means that if you're a black woman 
Congratulations. You worked January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. You will work all the way up until September 21st into 2022 before you make what your typical white male counterpart made by December 31st of 2021. That's what that means. All right. And so what we're seeing right now is a widening of the wage gap and not a, a, a decreasing of the wage gap. And it completely, I believe, jumped largely because of some of the uh, impacts that we've seen with the pandemic economy. Quite frankly, black women and other women of color are making less, and it appears as if white men are making more. My goodness. And, you know, I, I think um, equal payday largely for women is March 15th, but that, um, as you uh, talked about, you know, that's not for women of color. It's definitely not for black women, and they are making 83 cents on the dollar. That is for white women, um, March yep. 15th. So we are still working six months longer um, to actually get, um, what is it, the 58 cent on the dollar? 58 cents to the dollar is what the typical, what the today's, what this year's uh, wage disparity is between uh, black women and white men. That is our wage gap. We only make 58 cents to the dollar of what the typical white male makes in earnings. It's My ridiculous. Goodness. It is absolutely ridiculous. It is really the equivalent of just saying, you know, here is my 42 cents, you can have that. Um, it's on me. Um, so you mm -hmm. talked about the global pandemic continuing to loom, um, Dr. Avis. And so with this report that um, you have been writing, um, and as you said, you look 21, so it's hard to believe you've been doing this for over 20 years, <laughs> digging in these numbers, working for some of DC's most prominent think tanks. Uh, you know, we start thinking about legislation. And this is the importance of voting matters. We've been talking about how much voting matters, the court matters. Uh, you know, Xavier just talked about when we we're talking about these election workers um, that have said, listen, I, I can't do this anymore because of the continuing harassment, but why it's important to have people participating in democracy. It's important to have black women in legislation. Shout out to Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Today is her birthday. Um, this is the importance of the Congressional Black Caucus. This is the importance mm -hmm. of uh, the Black Women's Roundtable, which you are part of, and from that, where that report um, comes, stems out of, friend of the show, CEO and President Melanie Campbell. This is the importance um, of having black women when constructing policy. Um, in, in thinking about where black women are as in, ter in terms of where we're working, I know the Biden-Harris administration put out a statement that, you know, they're going to be working to improve um, women, largely, um, equal pay in federal government. But when we look at yeah. specifically black women, black women overrepresent largely in service industry jobs and in mm -hmm. health care. Talk to us a little bit about what discriminatory biases exist in those systems that really keep black women in those service industry uh, spaces and healthcare spaces where they're putting their own bodies on the line and not being able to protect their own? Absolutely. So we have, uh, as long as this nation has been in existence, we've not only had general segregation in terms of our history, but to this day, we have occupational segregation. And that is what we are seeing in terms of where black women typically are clustered in the workforce. As you mentioned, we tend to be clustered in service jobs. We tend to be clustered in low-wage jobs. Uh, we send, and particularly within the healthcare industry, oftentimes the most low-wage 
jobs within those industries, like home health care workers, for example. It's a very physically taxing job, a very difficult job, but it pays very low. So those are the places that oftentimes we are disproportionately represented uh, in terms of our employment. Now, um, you know, the, the challenge is that we have a long history of just underpaying people in those jobs. So when we see the wage gap, it's really reflecting a couple of different things. It's reflecting the fact that there is occupational segregation, and you tend to have women, and particularly black women, tend to be overly represented in low-wage jobs. But it's also true that when women and men work the same job, if you look at that data and disaggregate it, you also find that men still oftentimes get paid more, typically get paid more than women who work the very same job. So even if you look at a man in a traditionally female job, like nursing, male nurses tend to make more than female nurses. So the challenge is bifurcated. It's twofold. We have a challenge when it comes to wage discrimination across race and gender, the intersection of those two, and that's really impacting black women, especially in all those spaces. But we also have a problem with occupational segregation, uh, where black women tend to be clustered in jobs that pay low, low amounts of money, creates a huge burden on there in terms of their bodies. And particularly with regards to the pandemic, they tend to be clustered in those necessary jobs that put them in harm's way in terms of having to be out uh, with COVID, uh, where oftentimes white male might, might have a more um, protected job where they could do it at home, for example, and still bring down very, very high wages. Wow. The pandemic still looms for black women. And so, you know, so shifting into that, how, you know, you have those um, white male counterparts who are able to work remotely. So now here, you know, what choices are black women um, left with when we look at the numbers of black women who um, are leading in businesses, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, those numbers are, are really um, impressive. However, what is not impressive is that um, black women lead in businesses, but they lack access to capital. Um, you are a multi-hyphenated um, entrepreneur yourself. You know, not only a uh, political scientist, um, founder of Exceptional Black Women's Network, but you're also um, a, a coach, black millionaire coach. Talk to us about the importance of entrepreneurship and having the type of um, business that allows um, a black woman to not only be in business and have about $20,000, but to be in business, to have a salary for herself, to be able to hire a team, and hopefully be able to afford that team access to health care and be able to take care of multiple family members. Absolutely. So you're exactly right. And this is one of the reasons why I do what I do, because I... I, I so strongly believe that entrepreneurship is a very viable path and very important path uh, that black women take in order to be able to have better control over her own bottom line. Uh, the, the challenge is, as you mentioned, though black women sort of get what's going on in the workplace, we get that we are oftentimes paid less and asked to do more. We get that we're seeing people get promotions over us all the time and we're doing their work for them. We get that, right? And so I think that has a lot to do with why black women are the 
most likely demographic group to start her own business because she understands she's not being treated fairly in the workplace. But as you alluded to, the typical black woman-owned business typically doesn't scale. It typically doesn't make revenues that are on par with other women-owned businesses. In fact, the typical black woman-owned business over the course of the year makes only about $24,000 a year compared to uh, over $150,000 for the typical woman-owned business. So that is problematic. And, you know, I would argue that a lot of that goes to our lack of ability to really be able to charge what we're worth. And so I think a big part of that is to, when we make that leap, or even if we're doing it as a side hustle, you can still be able to charge appropriately what for what you do. Because, you know, if you're not going to be paid fairly, quote unquote, by the man, the last thing that you want to do is start your own business and then undercharge your damn self. Absolutely. And so what are some remedies that you offer um, before we go to the panel here in just a moment um, for people that are saying, OK, great, I have this business idea or I am in business. I'm a coach. I'm a consultant or I, I, there are things that I really can see um, scaling for myself. What remedies do you offer, Dr. Avis? Yeah, well, the first thing I, I think you need to do is understand that what that what's in your brain has value. I mean, I, I, I you know, what I see time and time again is I oftentimes see women and men who are great at doing something. They are brilliant. They have these skills. They have these assets. And because it comes easy to them, they almost under, undermine its value. They don't think it's very valuable because they can do it easy. And when I let people know that if you can do it easily, that's the very thing you should be charging a lot for. Because just because it comes easy to you, it doesn't mean that it comes easy for everybody else, right? So take a look at the market. Take a look at the competition. See what is happening out there in the real world in terms of what other people are being paid. I would just want to venture to encourage you to have the confidence of a mediocre white boy when it comes to pricing what you do. <laughs> Okay, and have the price tag put on it that they put on it, because the last thing that you want to do is to make yourself appear so inexpensive that even though you're brilliant, very, very good prospects that could actually hire you might undermine and undervalue what you bring to the table because they assume that you're not good. Oftentimes, people associate with price with quality. And when we underprice ourselves, instead of making us more attractive to people who are looking for quality, to people who are looking for an answer to their problems, for people who are looking to hire someone who will bring the solution, what you do instead is you make them question whether or not you can really do it. And so they would end up paying someone else twice as much, three times as much, four times as much as they would have paid you, even though you might have been actually better at producing the work. So get clear about what the the standard is in your industry and at least price at that level, if not even more aggressively. Absolutely. You heard it right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We're going to kick it to our panel. Uh, Dr. Julianne Malvo, your questions for Dr. Avis. First of all, I want to thank her for the report and her work. It's very good, right on time. As, as she knows, and some of y'all might, that's, I started out writing about occupational segregation years ago. Um, and <laughs> yeah. it literally is, that's a dual kind of occupational segregation that black women experience as opposed to the one that white women experience. But one of the things that's so important is Avis talked about entrepreneurship. We will not be paid equally, um, frankly, because uh, predatory capitalism prevents that from happening. But if we start our own businesses and price ourselves appropriately, we can basically close some of the income gap as well as the wealth gap. But Avis, one of the things that's really important here is to look at the impact of uh, COVID 
on black women. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why you see the downturn, which I've never seen such a thing either. Usually you see very, very tiny increases, but never a downturn. And that's what COVID did. Mm -hmm. What is the... Um, we know what the differences are in terms of working remotely and that executive jobs are the kinds that you can work remotely. Clerical jobs, you cannot work remotely. Interesting piece of data, one in six clerical black women has a BA degree. So you think about clerical workers, these are people who are really smart, but they just are not being equally paid. But other than the differences that come from the pandemic, um, differences that come from transportation, other things, what kind of differences can we model so that our girls, because I'm really interested in the next generation, so our girls don't have to deal with these kind of hurdles? What can we do in the labor market now? One thing, of course, is to be unionized when we have those kind of jobs. But what can mm -hmm. we do in the labor market now so the next generation has an easier time of it? Great question. And Dr. Malvo, I would be remiss if I did not, you know, acknowledge the brilliance of Dr. Malvo over the course of her career. Like, I would argue she's the premier black woman economist in the nation and has yes. been for quite some time. Um, yes. But I, I will say, in terms of what we can do to help the next generation, I think there are a few things. You know, as our young girls are coming up, I think it's very important that we expose them to a broad range of opportunities for their careers when they're in college or even before. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, this whole thing about occupational segregation, it is very much ingrained in us even as little children, what's men's work and what's women's work. And one very revolutionary thing that more of us can do is to pierce our way into traditional male occupations that have higher starting points and higher possibilities just in terms of wages. Now, that may beget other problems, right? I have colleagues, I have friends, I have clients who are in, for example, STEM types of jobs, and they talk about the racism and the sexism that's there. Well, we need to make sure that we band together and protect each other. But the bottom line I'm, I'm pointing to here, in addition to the unionization and in addition to fighting still politically for things like the Pay Paycheck Fairness Act, you know, I would argue that we need to make sure that our young girls are exposed to a wide range of possibilities from a very young age so that their um, view about what they can do in the work world is much broader than it may have been for me or definitely for my mother. I just think that expanding that, op that, that optic in terms of what she can do may be one good way that we can start chipping away at occupational segregation for that next generation. Da uh, Representative Shannon. Well, first, um, Dr. Avis, thank you for your work. I just tried to look you up on Twitter to see if I could follow you and couldn't find you on Twitter. But I want to say thanks for all <laughs> I'm still the scholar on Twitter. <laughs> I will be following. Um, nope. Thank you for bringing this up. You know, this is very disastrous, um, the wage gap for black women for a few reasons. Number one, we know that um, wage, that salaries, a lot of times and promotions are based off of previous wages. So when you're already being underpaid, even your future raises will not be the money that you actually deserve. Mm -hmm. And then we know the other thing, which is what my question is around, which is that a lot of times um, 401k and retirement is based off of your wages that you've made while you've worked. What advice do you give to uh, folks who are closer, black women who are closer to retirement and people are living longer nowadays um, who will be retiring soon, but they have um, based their, their retirement has been based off of these wages that are not equivalent to uh, what their white counterparts have made. 
Wow, you bring up two excellent points there. Uh, first, with regards to this issue of retirement, there have been research that's found <coughs> that due to the wage gap alone, when a black woman retires, she will retire with $1 million less than her white male counterpart money that she would have had had she been paid fairly over the course of her 30-year working career. So that's how this thing accumulates over time. Now, you know, how do you sort of get a, a, a start on that younger in your career so that you can create a better future for you when you get to that point? As you mentioned, this issue of making sure that you are paid well at the beginning is very important because oftentimes people do get raises based on where their salary is right now. So from the very beginning, we need to know that you, you know, negotiate your salary, negotiate your job offers, negotiate that. And then when you go from one job to the next job, don't think particularly if it's at another company, don't think they need to base what they're paying you today off of what they paid, what you got paid at the previous job. You need to become a very, very strong and confident salary negotiator and use that aggressively every step of the way. Um, at the end of the day, because we don't have something like the Paycheck Fairness Act, we really don't know uh, what our counterparts are making right next to us. Uh, but you can do your research around what the typical person in your geographic area with your specific profession tends to make, okay? And so do that research prior to entering into those negotiations so that you can get a sense of the ballpark of where your pay should be. And when you know that you're being lowballed, uh, don't be afraid to ask for more and don't be afraid to make sure that you are going to get it and go out there and um, look aggressively so that you can, in the best case scenario, have multiple job offers and then you can have people fighting over your genius. So that puts you in a very good position financially as well. Such sage, sage advice. Dr. Avis Jones DeWeaver, the founder of the Exceptional Black Woman's Network and the creator of Black Millionaire Coach Live. Thank you so much, friend of the show, for connecting with us today. And if people don't, you know, take anything else away from what Dr. Avis has said, just remember that Black Women's Payday is September 21st. Uh, 19 months of work uh, to catch up with the, not catch up, but to uh, have the same salary as the white male counterpart, I think is enough motivation to make sure that you connect with Dr. Avis Jones, the Weaver, and negotiate and get your money. Thank you so much, Dr. Avis, for joining <laughs> us today. Thanks for having me, Erica. Absolutely. And Roland Martin will be right back here after this short break on the Black Star Network in just a moment. Thank you. I challenge myself as an artist and challenge knowing that I'm going to challenge the audience, right? So oftentimes you come into this business off of one project where everybody's like, ooh, ooh, you stand out. Okay, for me it was Barbershop, Ricky, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Ricky was nothing like me growing up, right? <laughs> nothing like me growing up. But if that's people's first experience with you, right, as an audience member, they tend to think that's the real you, right? So, uh, you know, for me, after that, I got a whole bunch of offers to play roles just like Ricky, right? This Tupac-esque 
type of type of thug, right? And I just said no over and over again. And then you keep trying to do other things. And then I went through a, a, a series of romantic movies and romantic leads, and you know, I always try to bring some sort of gravitas to those roles. And then it was like, okay, well, but before I get into all of that, let me hit y'all with, you know, for color girls, and you know, step outside of the realm of, you know, what you expect of me to do um, as an audience member in terms of being this romantic lead and everything. Because I didn't get into this business to be the romantic lead, you know, that dude. Like I didn't get into this business. Because you can get locked business. in. You can totally get locked in. When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure. On the next Get Wealthy with me, Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, you see the headlines. All frightening, right? Interest rates are going up. The recession is on the way. The stock market is up and down. But you know what they say, scared money, don't make money. That's why I'm excited on our next Get Wealthy to have a conversation with someone who has written a new book, Fearless Finances, and she's going to share exactly what you need to do to secure your bag, regardless of the ups and downs of the economy or the stock market. Oftentimes you can start with as little as $5. That's right here, only on Get Wealthy on Black Star Network. When we invest in ourselves, we're investing in what's next for all of us. Growing, creating, making moves that move us all forward. Together, we are black beyond measure. Carl Payne pretended to be Roland Martin. Holla! You are watching Roland Martin, and I'm on his show today. And it's, what, huh? You should have some chew cards. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. E Right in our Black and Missing today, it is Reginald Smoot Jr. Reginald Smoot Jr. has been missing since August 3rd, 2022 from Cumberland, North Carolina. The 31-year-old Black male is six feet two inches tall, weighs 195 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. When Reginald disappeared, he was wearing a pink colored shirt, gray shorts, and tan colored shoes. Anyone with information about Reginald Smoot, Smoot Jr. should please call the Cumberland, North Carolina Police Department at 910-677-5539. Uh, as we continue forward in news, a white Mississippi Highway Patrol trooper gets cleared of wrongdoing after a video of him using excessive force against a black man went viral. The Mississippi Department of Public Safety said Trooper Hayden Falvey did not violate policies or exhibit criminal conduct against Eugene Lewis during his arrest. The department and investigators from two divisions, the Mississippi Highway Safety Patrol 
and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation said they completed all necessary inquiries and that Officer Falvey will not face any disciplinary action. I want to um, take this to our panel, and I know that this video was showed in full um, last week on the show. Um, when I read through the updates, I also uh, found out that Lewis's two brothers um, were also, uh, they came to the scene to see what was happening with their brother, and they actually um, filmed a lot of the footage that we see. So this is police dash cam combined with their video and that uh, Eugene said that he couldn't breathe, um, that the trooper said, well, you're running your mouth, you can breathe, and that the two brothers who were there to record and possibly save his life in this rural area, Macomb, Mississippi, um, were effectively arrested. Now, um, Xavier, I want to start with you. Together, these three brothers um, that were arrested are facing 22 charges between the three of them. One is facing nine charges, another brother is facing eight charges, and then uh, the last brother is facing five charges. Two of the brothers were there specifically to record their brother because if we have seen black people, um, both young and senior, um, an arrest can be lethal for any of us. Um, the same officer that was cleared of any wrongdoing by the Mississippi Highway Patrol um, and the other investigative um, arm um, was told, uh, um, well, this officer um, said, in quote, um, about the two brothers that were there, they should not have stopped to shoot video. Now all of you all are catching charges for theatrics. Uh, what hopes um, do we have, Xavier, um, especially since he's been internally cleared um, of anything happening as a result of this black man after he was handcuffed, um, being put into a chokehold and wrestled into a ditch? It's actually enraging, Erica, that we see video after video, um, but it's back to blue mm -hmm. um, for a certain segment of society who wants to effectively only see um, support of law enforcement when they are roughing black and brown people. Um, but when it comes to the, we started this show out, the highest office, people are screaming, defund the FBI and uh, want to attack law enforcement. Right. If you think about the origin of law enforcement in this country was designed to keep us down. Okay. So 2022, we still see uh, the vestiges of slavery in this country and treating black and brown people like dogs. And then the state terrorism mm -hmm. that acts as if you record to try to get proof of what's happened because, hey, we'll turn the camera off of the body cam or no one would see how this gentleman would, would be treated or even worse if those individuals might not have been there, then they are now being caught up in a, the criminal justice system as well. This is state intimidation. Uh, yeah. This is something that our nation needs to resolve and has not been resolved. We did not pass a George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that has been put on the back burner in terms of advancing our rights. And so it's frustrating to see this as a black man, especially in law, because the reason why I became a lawyer is because some negative treatment that I had when I was in college. 
by law enforcement. And so we have to be able to continue to speak up. And that's why Roland Martin Unfiltered is an is a important platform, because many platforms aren't showing the, the extent of beginning to end and what we should do about this grave injustice and the difference of black and white in our country. It's, it's simply disgusting, it's dehumanizing, and it needs to stop. Oh, God, you're absolutely right. And I'm so sorry to hear, Xavier, about um, that engagement that you had. But, and, I shouldn't say but, and I am um, glad to know that out of um, that experience, and I hope that there are more experiences like that, but as we largely see, um, especially with black people, black men, um, that these aren't singular experiences, right, but that you took what you experienced it and you said that you were going to um, engage the machine, so to speak. So um, thank you for sharing that. I'm very glad to have you as a part um, of our legal system. Um, and as you said, that Roland Martin Unfiltered is one of the only platforms that does cover these stories from end to end. Um, they do seem to be breathless sometimes, but we have to have these stories in our face so that we can understand that voting matter, the courts matter, people that are in the Legal, legal system matters, such as Xavier Pope, and folks like, you know, as Dr. Avis brought forward, you know, having a Dr. Julianne Malveaux, an economist, um, someone who was still involved in higher education. And I want to go to you, Representative Shannon, because this also um, involves some communication that has happened with the state representative there in Mississippi. And so he was speaking um, with uh, the news, the local news network there, and said that he'd actually spoken to the Mississippi um, Public Safety Commissioner, which they were um, said that they did not see any wrongdoing. Um, along with the other legal arm um, quoted in this um, particular piece. And that Mississippi um, Public Safety Commissioner's name is, his last name is Tyndall. And he said, listen, you know, we, we pretty much don't see any wrongdoing here. As a legislator um, who has um, charge of a specific district, and it is not just, you know, the mundane things, but actually ensuring that those citizens themselves feel safe, um, when things like this happen, that they do feel like they're going to pick up the phone and be able to talk to uh, their state representative and actually have a remedy for it. Um, what are you seeing as a responsibility of someone who has power um, within a state to ensure that citizens who might not have received what they perceive to be uh, some um, stretch of justice to be able to help them um, move through the system and, and to be able to get some, some type of justice or some type of ramification or bigger eyes on their particular predicament. So first, let me say um, the comments from the officer, I'm not surprised. I've consistently worked on these issues of police accountability. And I've consistently said that for far too long, officers in this country have had an unearned benefit of the doubt. And we actually have no clue as to what police officers have been doing in this country. And now we're starting to see more and more cases where an officer's ego has been bruised. And that has led to more um, brutality against the, the black folks they come in contact with. So what I would say is that we Democrats have got to get serious about working on this issue. I have consistently worked on this issue um, in my time in the House, and I've filed many bills and stood with many families, whether they lived in my district or not, because they have been brutalized or murdered by police. 
And I would add that even the uh, justice um, in policing, the George Floyd Act, is not tough enough. You must mm -hmm. remove qualified immunity. Until you do that, these officers know that they can get away with brutalizing and murdering black people for absolutely no reason. Yeah. And that is the issue that we have here. I have literally known DAs who have wanted to charge police officers because they look at videos like this and they say, you know, this is completely wrong and anybody <clears throat> could see that. You don't have to be a DA to be able to see that. But they know that because the way that the law is structured, their, their cases are not going to hold up in court if they do charge officers. So... This is something that really frustrates me a lot because I am usually one of the only voices speaking about this, willing to talk about this, as Democrats, at least in Georgia and what I see across the country, continue to run away from this issue. This is the issue that you need to get tough on. It's not going to be enough to win elections to talk about how bad Republicans are, because that does nothing. All that means is folks can just folks can agree with you and say, yeah, those people are terrible. They can still stay home. You have to give people something to vote for. And this is an issue that is on the minds of folks like myself. It's on the minds of people um, thinking about their families. People are literally scared for their relatives to be out and about because they don't know what police interaction is going to turn into their relative not coming home. So Democrats need to stop running from this issue, get serious about it, and put your money where your mouth is. Because what we see happening right now is that Republicans and, and large groups of white people who are suddenly understanding that the law is for everyone, not just for black people, are now screaming defund the police, and they haven't even been treated unfairly. And you watch. There are going to be some people who are going to agree with them when they could not hear our calls to say stop spending so much money on policing issues and invest in communities. And that agreement will be nothing but the epitome of anti-blackness, that they couldn't see it or didn't want to see it or to take it seriously when black folks have been saying this for decades and decades. Absolutely. I uh, love everything that you just said. I mean, you think about um, the, the roots of policing the slave patrols um, back in the 1700s. And so um, not a whole lot of change, especially for black people. Dr. Malvo, I mean, you know, you, you lived in D.C. Uh, you, um, you know, we were not spared of hearing police sirens, not uh, uh, spared from hearing emergency vehicles all day long. And Representative Shannon brought out a really great point um, with regards to police officers. And, you know, it made me think about the language that we hear police officers. They speak with deference when they're talking um, to black citizens um, or, um, as um, it's been said largely on this show, you know, no humans found, um, who, however that it is that they perceive us. Um, but they talk with, um, to us with such aggressive language, um, curse words. You know, as I said, this particular officer um, said that, you know, to the three brothers that were arrested, two of the brothers who were there to really make sure that their brother's life was safe, I believe that they should not have stopped to shoot video. Now all of y'all are catching charges for theatrics in, in, in concert with um, not only um, the trauma, um, but then the cursing as well. Uh, you know, Representative Shannon said that this is an issue that definitely needs to be lifted a lot more. People also want to feel safe um, as a part of their human experience. What do you believe um, should be um, a remedy around what we continue to see. And I know that you have seen uh, for many, many years around policing and black bodies and how law enforcement is unafraid to engage black people like they would no one else. No, they, Mississippi got them. 
I said it last week, but we were mm -hmm. we we saw the video. Nina Simone sang it. It's what it is. Mississippi. I've lived in D.C. I've lived in California. I've lived a lot of places, but. Mississippi is the bottom of the bucket when it comes to how they treat black people. You give me a minute, not a funny story, but a really poignant one. In 1986, I took my mama from New Orleans to Biloxi, Mississippi. She's from Biloxi. She wants to go to her high school reunion. Um, our mother sorrows Catholic high school. Okay, whatever. Um, I was not speeding. I was going 56 miles an hour to 55. Do you know the man stopped me um, and talked more dookie than the law allowed? until I lost my temper and talked some back. The sad thing about this, my mother's from Mississippi. She literally started sobbing. She cried for about 20 minutes. She begged the man. The man said, get out the car. I said, I'm not getting out this car. Oh, no. And mommy said, Julianne, don't get out the car. But she's crying. She was literally, she was so afraid that she's crying. And then the man finally had a shred of humanity. And he said to my mom, why are you crying? She said, I don't want you to kill us. And that's literally, in 1986, she was, you know, in her 70s, and that's literally what she thought, is that we would be killed. Wow. You know, she, and, and uh, that's the fear that is instilled in our community. I mean, the man finally, he, he didn't give me a ticket. I told him, give me a ticket. I don't care. I want a ticket because I want your name. He refused to give me a ticket. He held us for a few more minutes, and he told my mother he was sorry that she had a bad experience in Mississippi. I said, you ain't sorry for me? And Mommy said, Julia, please just be quiet while we're ahead. But I mean, I, I was scared, but I wasn't that scared because I talked a lot of stuff, too. But what hit me was how frightened my mother was yeah. as an elder, how she sat there and just sobbed and couldn't stop crying. And I think we went another 20 miles, and she was still crying. I'm like, Mommy, please stop crying. She said, I can't, I can't, I'm so afraid. This is what they, they have instilled in us. There was no civility nor decency in the way this man talked to me. He actually used, called me out of my name, you know, rhymes with which, and uh, of course I called him a Maryland farmer in response, which was not a good thing to do. Young people, if you're watching, don't curse out the police, it ain't gonna turn out right. But in any case, what I would say is Mississippi is the worst, and we know it. I hope that uh, Kristen Clark the Justice Department, that man needs that. He violated that man's civil rights and violated the whole family's civil rights. And we need to keep bringing these lawsuits, bringing these lawsuits, bringing these lawsuits. But the George Floyd Act, as the representative has said, is insufficient. They basically, we have to unpack this white arrogance. It's not even superiority. They are not superior, they are inferior. What we have to re unpack is their arrogance to make them understand that we, too, are human beings. And we should not have to say that. We should not have to assert that. But we do because they continue to denigrate us, to belittle us, and when they feel like it, to put their hands on us. Mm -hmm. There have to be consequences, and we have to ensure that there are. And I do hope that D Department of Justice look at this. This is a small thing in the scheme of things, but it's not small because it happens. We don't even know how often this happens. Yeah. That's what the tragedy is. We don't know how often it happens. We don't know where the bodies are buried in Mississippi, mm -hmm. but we know they're buried. Absolutely. And this is why Roland's book, White Fear, drops in September, available for pre-order. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back as we continue to stream live on the Black Star Network. When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence. Oh, 
White people are losing their damn minds. As an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol, we're about to see the rise of what I call white minority resistance. We have seen white folks in this country who simply cannot tolerate black folks voting. I think what we're seeing is the inevitable result of violent denial. This is part of American history. Every time that people of color have made progress, whether real or symbolic, there has been what Carol Anderson at Emory University calls white rage as a backlash. This is the rise of the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys. America, there's going to be more of this. Here's all the Proud Boys, guys. This country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people. The fear that they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources, they're taking our women. This is white fear. When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Nelson. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. As schools get back into session, the nation's top public health agency relaxed its COVID-19 guidelines, dropping the recommendation that people quarantine themselves if they encounter an infected person. The CDC also, say, also says people no longer need to stay at least six feet away from others. Not me. So what should you do to keep your child safe as they return to school? Joining us is a pediatrician and clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, Dr. Eric Yancey from Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Yancey. So good to have you on today. So really want to work through... Oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Have so many questions. So as I was looking through the CDC guidelines and understanding, you know, they told people you no longer had to wear masks on planes. And so we saw the celebration of that, you know, here in D.C., where a lot of people use metro um, transportation and everywhere else. Trains saw those mask mandates lifted there. But, you know, we're talking about our kids and... Um, so I just want to read off some of the recommendations um, that the CDC um, has provided an update. They removed the recommendation that we just said to quarantine except in high risk congregate settings. Um, and um, they also um, removed recommendation to cohort, um, change recommendation to uh, con conduct screen set screening, testing to focus on high-risk activities during high COVID-19 community level or response to an outbreak. You know, parents, uh, you know, I, I was reading the story in the LA Times around parents um, are talking with their children um, around some of the things that they need to be prepared for in school. And these kids are literally communicating to their parents that they do have some fears around not only COVID-19, the, you know, year three of this virus that we're in, but monkeypox, you know, there's been a resurgence of polio. So what are some things um, that you could say to parents um, to help ease their children and the teachers as well as they move into this new school year 
with the CDC no longer backing a lot of the protections that we saw in the first and second year of COVID? Well, I think one of the, the, the biggest things and one of the things that has been for quite some time now, the best way to protect children from uh, acquiring the COVID virus uh, and thereby spreading it uh, is to be vaccinated. Uh, the barrier methods and the distancing methods are good. Um, uh, they do tend to help some, but they're not really, it's going to be very difficult to carry those out. We saw that last year. It's um, uh, the masking, you know, created such a stir in so many different settings that it's very difficult to um, get that effectively done um, to where, you know, everybody leaves them on and this, this kind of thing. So that's just not going to happen. Uh, so I think one of the, the best way to protect a child is to make sure that they have a certain level of protective antibody uh, in their in their own systems, and that would be with a vaccine. So is this really a time for parents to do a check to ensure that their child's um, vaccination card, their vaccination schedule is up to date, especially as we're seeing, like in New York, there was untreated water, so there was a rise in, um, there was a resurgence, rather, in polio coming back. Would you be urging parents to look back on those vaccination records to make sure that their MMRs, um, tetanus, things of those, those natures, that those are up to date as well? They have, they're gonna, that the schools do it to some degree, but it's ultimately the parents' responsibility to make sure those children are vaccinated. We've been able to eliminate a lot of very deadly uh, diseases by the, the, the route of vaccinations. I happen to be old enough, I'm blessed enough to be old enough to have actually seen many of these uh, deadly diseases. Uh, and I've just read about them, but I've actually seen them. And uh, since the, the advent of some of those vaccines, they've just gone away. We just don't see them anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the, uh, that kind of holds as well uh, for, you know, any type of virus that we, we develop a vaccine for. Now, COVID's probably not going to go anywhere. But so it's, so it's going to be circulating out there. It's going to be at games. It's going to be in classrooms. It's going to be in cafeterias. It's going to be out there. So the, once again, the individual protection is the best way to protect your child from um, from acquiring this virus, both the family members and the child. Uh, certainly the long-term complications um, are less in children, even if you do acquire a COVID uh, who have been vaccinated. The, uh, certainly the, the serious illness is less. Um, so the immunizations are extremely important. We've really never seen the wiping out of a deadly virus without the, without the help of, uh, of, of vaccines. So, yes, the parents should definitely check those cards. Schools will be checking them, but you want to make sure that you're on top of it as well. Okay, and I'm going to have my panel ask a question before we close out. The last thing I want to ask you, um, Dr. Yancey, is around um, the booster schedule um, for children. Should children be talking to their pediatricians about not only getting the vaccine, um, depending on if it's one or two shots, but following, um, or is it recommended that children also follow the boost schedule as well, or a specific boost schedule? Yeah, it's recommended that all the children between a five and above actually get a booster a booster shot. Um, that booster recommendation is not there for the six months to five years yet, but uh, but it's recommended for those after that. Antibodies tend to kind of tail off after a period of time, uh, and so therefore you want to make sure that that level of antibody, that protective antibody to protect you from those infections, is quote boosted um, after a certain number of months. Uh, so it is recommended for those, uh, you know, five and above to get that one. And that will provide a, uh, an additional layer of protection against the, uh, the, the ability to neutralize those viruses as they get into your system. Let's assume they're going to get into your system, but the ability to neutralize them is enhanced 
if you're able to get those booster doses and if you get the primary series from the beginning. So uh, it's very important to get the, the first ones, the complete the primary series, and then five and above, go ahead and get the booster. All right. So you heard it right here from Dr. Yancey. Check that immunization, immunization record, get, uh, get those shots, and then uh, follow your boost schedule. Um, Mr. Pope, your question for Dr. Yancey. Dr. Yancey, thank you for your expertise. Wanted to wonder about, in terms of booster, is it okay for children to get a second booster? Uh, and, and what is maybe the impact of that in terms of kids going back to school as they get around each other a little bit more? And tell us a little bit more about how can parents learn a little bit more so they can protect their kids from um, maybe uh, what's going on with the monkeypox and, and some of their fears about that as well. Okay. Well, I think that one of the things, when we have a virus that actually either causes um, disfigurement, uh, causes things that you can visibly see, parents are naturally, you know, uh, more upset about those. Oh, my goodness. I mean, polio uh, in the in 1950s, 1940s and 50s, you'd walk, walk around and you'd see these children in these, in these wheelchairs and, and assisted devices and whatever. And it was, parents were just terrified of that. So the, the immunization acceptance rate was really pretty high. Um, uh, COVID has not done the same thing in that you don't see as much on the outside, not as much visibly. But keep in mind that there are some things still going on when a child gets COVID. There are still possibilities of infectious things, of, I'm sorry, inflammatory things going on in the inside that you just don't see, once again, to be able to be protected from it. Now, your original question about the, the second booster. Um, the, 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 it appears that the ones who benefit most from the second booster are the uh, elderly and the ones with extreme um, uh, immune-compromised systems. So at this point, a uh, second booster is, is recommended for those that are, uh, again, I, and I think the age is, is uh, 65 or 70 and above. I don't really think that's too elderly, but 65 or 70 and above, and, uh, and for those who have documented immune, uh, immune compromise. So I think if, if we can get a, a number of the majority of children to get that primary series and then the one booster, we're going to be in pretty good shape for protection. All right, Representative Shannon. Yes, in the beginning, um, folks were being told that once they had had COVID, they needed to wait a certain period of time before getting the vaccine if they were not already vaccinated or before getting the booster. What do you recommend now as the period of time to wait, or do you even need to wait anymore once you've had COVID before getting a booster? Well, generally, it's been as once you're once you're basically asymptomatic and not feverish anymore, you should be able to get it. Yes, we had initially said way back. It was like 90 days, you had to wait and whatever. Well, now it's, it's really tough to determine who has it and who doesn't. So if you're not symptomatic and you um, uh, are, are not running fevers anymore, you're recovering from that, it's okay to go ahead and get your shot. All right, and Dr. Malvo. Dr. Yancey, thanks so much for your expertise and for sharing with us. My question has to do with uh, vaccine resistance, especially those children whose parents are resistant to the vaccine. You have, you, we still have the remnants of the previous president who politicized this. So, I mean, my old sibling, my brother refuses to get vaccinated. He's had COVID three times and he still will not get vaccinated. How, how do we protect the children whose parents are anti-vax? Well, I think what we have to, have to realize is that just because you don't see the effects of something, it doesn't mean it's occurring, it's not occurring. 
And so when we look at really the, the poster child for vaccines is polio, you know, and, and everybody could see it. It was really d deadly. It was just, it was just awful. And people said, look, let's go get this. So now we have a situation where we just don't see it. So we don't see the, the outer uh, manifestations of this disease nearly as much. But I think we still have to have to get across to the parents. And just because you don't see something on the outside, there's still a lot of things going on on the inside. Now, we still have had, true, most people who have died of COVID have been uh, above um, 65, uh, the vast majority above 55. But we still have, uh, we still have hundreds of children who have died of COVID. And so I think that what we have to look at there, it's a safe vaccine. And, and I, I think parents are many times worried about the side effect profile. The side effect profile has been very good. It's very good. It's safe, it's effective, it's potent, and it works. And so therefore we have to look at that. When will we know everything about the vaccine? We won't, okay? Dr. Eric Yancey, thank you so much for taking our questions. Pediatrician and clinical assistant professor at pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. And before we go, we have some sad news from the entertainment world. Actor and director Denise Douse passed away Saturday. Douse played Vice Principal Yvonne Teasley on Beverly Hills 90210, Judge Rebecca Damson on The Guardian, and therapist Rhonda Pine on Insecure. Dows's older sister, Tracy Dows, announced her sister's death on Instagram. Tracy described her sister as, quote, the most amazing sister, a consummate, illustrious actress, mentor, and director. She was my very best friend and final family member. Denise Dows was 64 years young. Mm. Rest in power. And so I want to say thank you to an incredible Monday panel. Thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Julianne Malvo, Georgia representative. Uh, this is Renita Shannon and the phenomenal Mr. Xavier Pope. Thank you so much for joining us today. And to you, Roland Martin Unfiltered audience, I hope that you had a really, really good time rolling with me today. Being in Roland Stead, I'll be right back in the guest seat on Thursday with the All-Star VIP panel. So join me here again on Thursday. But make sure you download the Black Star Network app and that you are liking and that you are sharing this broadcast. Have a wonderful day. And in the road, in the words of our the great Roland Martin, holla. See you here tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be well. Thank you.